You're listening to Father Kirby Longo's Homilies, powered by Mountain Catholic. Father Kirby is a priest of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Helena and pastor of Christ the King University Parish in Missoula, Montana. So when you think of, start with you, when you think of the Mass before the Second Vatican Council and the Mass after the Second Vatican Council, what changed? The language. Okay, so we went from Latin to the vernacular, whatever the vernacular happens to be in whatever country you're in. Uh, What else? Orientation. So the priest used to face the high altar. The altar was attached. uh, And then we, in many places, detached the altar. In many places, built new altars, uh, brought them forward so the priest was facing the people. What else? More scripture. Yeah, more scripture, more preaching. Uh, So we added a second reading. Used to just be uh, the first reading was either from the epistle or the old testament and then a reading from the gospel Uh, we've added a second reading so now we have an old testament reading all the time and the epistle and then expanded the lectionary from one year to three years Uh, so now over the course of those three years we go pretty much through the entire gospels uh, and most of the old testament and epistles yeah receiving the host on the hand yeah the fast has changed significantly the pre before mass fast Okay, head coverings. Yeah, so veils, veils for women and men. Well, that, men still don't wear hats in the church. It used to be that the men took their hats off, the women put the veil on as they walked into mass. If you actually look at places with old pews, you'll see clips in front of all the seats for men's hats. It's a strong hint. My mom actually just reminded me that when I was talking to her the other day, when she used to go to Mass with her Catholic friends, when she was a kid, the mom would just pull a napkin out of the purse and just slam it on her head as she walked in. And they never got to eat Sunday breakfast uh, because of the fast. So that was her personal experience of the Catholic Church. She never stayed with her Catholic friends Saturday night, only Friday night. Uh, so, what else? Yeah, so kneeling versus standing. You used to kneel at the altar rail. Uh, so the kneeling and receiving on the tongue kind of being one in that sense. Now standing and then the option of receiving on the tongue or on the hand. Would you explain the fast in your meals? So the fast went from... The fast used to be midnight the night before Mass. So you, you couldn't eat from midnight until when you went to Mass. Uh, that in all masses, not just not just Sunday, but all daily masses. Then, in 1957, so this is before the Second Vatican Council, it was reduced to three hours before mass because they had introduced Saturday evening mass in 1957. So you couldn't expect someone to fast from, you know, Friday at midnight till Saturday at 5:30 p.m. on water alone. I mean, when my, my mom remembers them not even being able to drink water. You couldn't even swallow the, the water from your toothpaste. You had to make sure you spit it all out. And her mom watched. Uh, so that, it was a very intense fast. The water was an addition of that mom. You could drink water. Uh, 
but the three, three hours before Mass. After the Second Vatican Council, it was re reduced to an hour before Communion. So pretty much as long as you don't accidentally eat something, as you're walking into Mass, you're good to go. Or if you don't, like, swallow your gum or something. But, yeah, the hour before Communion is, is actually kind of wild. That's, that's something that I'm, I don't think will stand the test of time. Three hours before Mass sounds actually sort of reasonable. It's sort of like, don't eat a meal before the great banquet. Uh, you know what I mean? So that's, uh, you know, morning mass is a little, that makes that a little hard because you're, you're not going to be up three hours before mass. So I think that's the thought behind the hour before communion. But literally, hour before communion, that means you just like, you could accidentally hold to that fast 98% of the time uh, without any sort of even intentionality to it. So it might as well not exist, to be honest. Uh, you know, the wisdom of the church, okay, I'll, we'll go with it. But the, yeah, that's the current state, uh, except on Fridays in Lent. We abstain from meat. And then Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, are the only days left in the entire liturgical calendar when we fast. Um, and fasting in the church has, for millennia, meant two, one ordinary meal without meat, and then two small meals that do not add up to that one ordinary meal. So basically, you're allowed to snack on something beginning in the end of the day, and then usually middle of the day, uh, eat an ordinary meal. Or, you know, you can choose when you eat it, I guess. Uh, yeah, and that's a, that's a totally reasonable way to, to fast. Um, so in with those changes, though, it wasn't like the Friday fast, on the Friday abstinence for the full year was just gotten rid of. The documents actually say they can be substituted with another fitting act of penance. So if we're not abstaining from meat on Fridays, we are still obliged to do something, like pray a rosary or read the scriptures for a half an hour. That's a fitting one. Uh, or do some acts of act, significant act of almsgiving or some other sort of penance, wear a hair shirt, do whatever you want. But we're, we're not just, we didn't just like give that up. Fridays are still set apart. Um, but we've, as priests and as the church at large, we have totally failed to actually tell people that. So most people are not actually held to that according to their conscience. But now you all are. So, because I just told you, so you're, you're responsible to do something on Fridays. It doesn't have to be abstaining from meat. Um, that's, that's part of why there, there was a strong, there, and, and it's resurged, a strong tradition of praying the rosary on Friday. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good active, uh, it's not a penance, it's a good active sort of thing, if you don't already pray a daily rosary, to set Friday apart in a beautiful way. Um, or, you know, our street walks on Fridays is a good, it's a good time for street walks. Um, so that, anything else? Oh, sure. Yeah. The kneelers in our church, specifically? Sure. Yeah, I mean, it depends on where you go. I would, I would say, pretty objectively, most places kept the kneelers all along. But there were movements within the church 
to, to not kneel at certain times in the Mass. I'm not sure when that would have taken hold. Uh, to be honest, I haven't looked up the history of that in particular because, well, partly because it was a small thing that I don't think, I don't know how many books or anything there was written about that because it was such a localized movement. Um, but I think that falls into general experimentation within the liturgy. Um, and that, that was a much larger scale thing. So in particular, kneelers uh, would be a, sort of like one example of a general experimentation within the liturgy. And, and I think in today's, I mean, in today in a, for a lot of people, when you say experimentation within the liturgy, it has a, a very negative connotation. Uh, it did not have a negative connotation for a large swath of people for a long time. Uh, so, I mean, even our, our mission statement at Christ the King says something like, Christ the King is the laboratory of Vatican II, or something like that. Uh, and that, even just that in itself, what do you do in a laboratory? You experiment. So Christ the King was seen as sort of on the forefront of experimentation within, uh, you know, after Vatican II for the liturgy. And so that was, I would say, kneelers are just sort of a manifestation of, why are we kneeling? Christ is, you know, is resurrected. We're resurrected people. We're not servants. Servants kneel. So there was a, that's kind of generally what I've heard people say in terms of why we have not knelt. Like that's, you know, I think Hunhausen might have said something like, we're resurrected people. And, and so then we took the kneelers out of the church. I think it was like 85 here. So that's probably around the time when it was happening elsewhere. Uh, so, yeah, and that seemed to really gain steam in, in Missoula in particular. Didn't they start to use like guitar music and stuff like that? So, yeah, guitar, it, and we'll talk about that when we go into the document in terms of instruments that are seen as sort of fitting within the liturgy. Uh, and, and there was an allowance after the council for an expansion of fitting liturgical instruments and, and what that looks like. And, and there's a lot of opinions on that. And that part of the document for sure is not perfectly clear. It, it, it sort of lays down general norms. Sacrosanctum Concilium in general lays down norms. Sacrosanctum Concilium is not the Roman Missal third edition, which is what we celebrate now. It's the document that laid down the norms from which we, we reformed the Roman Missal into what is today the third edition of the Roman Missal, which was promulgated in 1970, I believe. Yeah. Did talk about the ways of posture during mass. Yeah. Extended periods of standing, and that's when that was pretty well brought around. And um, after communion, that's the time you went to kneel. And uh, I think it was not being used. It was sort of like we have all these kneelers here, but the germ is not telling us. Hmm. Okay. To um, to kneel. 
president permitted the scandals towards his arm to Interesting, yeah. Because the, I guess I've never read the second edition germ, but the third edition germ specifically says to Neil, after the holy, 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 through the consecration until the great amen, and then at the end of the Lamb of God until basically coming up for communion. Uh, and so that, I guess I, I, yeah, I'd have to look back at the second edition of the general instruction. I did not know that was the case. Uh, and it might have, the third edition still says if you need to, obviously, if extraordinary circumstances uh, or demand, you can sit or even stand if sitting is not comfortable. But that's that's like individual extraordinary circumstances. No one's required to kneel in that sense. You don't have to like, if you have bad knees, don't kneel. No. Yeah, germ is general instruction of the Roman Missal. So it's not spelled G-E-R, it's G-I-R-M. Some people call it the germ, which sounds terrible, I think. Germ doesn't sound much better, to be honest. Uh, sort of like an unhealthy thing. Uh, no, it's fairly, it's, it's fairly sterile, actually. It's pretty boring to read, but it's rubrics, so that's why. Uh, it, yeah, it's just like, do this here, and then you do this here. And, and it might give it like a, it's not like a spiritual read by any means. It's sort of just like, a user's manual for the mass. Yeah, the germ would be put together by the USCCB, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And that's because it's put together on a regional basis. According to the general rubric, rubrics, they are then applied in, in amongst different cultures. Because in different cultures, you're going to do different things. Uh, and within the English-speaking world, uh, actually within the Roman world at large, so the West, you could say, kneeling has been the tradition during those times, and say other things like certain instruments are not suggested within the West that would be perfectly at home in African countries, you know, or like certain types of sort of enculturation, enculturation differs everywhere, depending on the culture where you're at. Uh, and so certain cultures are going to have a different germ, general instruction, because they have certain enculturations that are allowed. And then certain places obviously aren't going to have that um, if it's not relevant to their culture. So it's put, it's put together by conferences of bishops, which are set up throughout the world and are generally uh, not good, or not, I don't want to say not good, like, generally do not give authoritative statements, but in certain areas they have authority, and the liturgy is one of those areas. And, like, confirmation, like, how old is a kid when they get confirmed? USCCB decides that. Uh, well, let's get into it, because I think we'll, a lot of these, a lot of the questions, oh, sure. Yeah, so that's so. This there is there was a, a much a very concrete ver idea of what was called progressive solemnity. So you'd have like a low mass. What we called low mass and high mass was actually just 
there, there's not like a different missile used for either of those, or there wasn't different rubrics. It's just if you're wearing your best vestments, you're incensing when it's when it's whenever it's optional. You actually have a choir, you have a subdeacon, which is a rare bird, and you, you have all these different people that are involved. Then you could celebrate the full Roman liturgy. But if you didn't have certain elements there, you couldn't. And a lot was required for the full celebration of the liturgy. It was kind of assumed that you'd have like three priests because the permanent diaconate didn't even exist. It was reinstituted at Vatican II. So the only deacons you were going to have were either seminarians who were one year away from priesthood, which is literally like, that's a rare bird too, or you have three priests, one acting as priest, one acting as deacon, one acting as subdeacon. And so that's, that's just a lot. You can't, I mean, the chances of us getting three priests to celebrate a mass at Christ the King is almost zero. So it still uh, exists. So, yeah, basically we can celebrate a high mass in the sense that we can go all out, do the full Roman liturgy whenever we want because it's not as complicated anymore. Uh, so, like, we're going to have a more solemn liturgy around Christmas or during, like, on the Immaculate Conception or, or those sorts of things. Um, and we can do all that without all the required parts. Uh, we just don't... We're, I actually kind of want to restore the idea of progressive solemnity, where we have simple masses when it's just a normal day, and then we go all out when it's a big feast, um, because that's just a good rhythm to have in life. Uh, and Sunday should look should look different than a daily mass. That too, that's kind of part of progressive solemnity. Uh, we're not just going to go incense every day for daily mass, you know. That's a uh, or that's partly why daily mass only has two readings. Sunday has three. That sort of progressive solemnity, a big feast day or solemnity. We'll say the Gloria and the Creed, even if it's not on a Sunday. So that's uh, that's kind of the idea. We still have it. It's just not as obvious visually as it might have been in the old Mass. So let's dig in. So first, we'll start. Uh, we got the little intro, which we've kind of gone over everything that's in it anyways. So we'll skip right to uh, paragraph 7. Uh, which which approaches a, a topic that I think is worth talking about. Oh, yeah. 157. So it's right in the beginning of chapter 1. Uh, the bottom, bottom of 157. So, and that's the idea of the presence of Christ. Where, where is Christ present? How is he present in different places? Because that's been one of the, that's been part of the conversation uh, since Vatican II for sure, and and it's had concrete implications in that sense. So it's talking about just what the the nature of the sacred liturgy, and then and then the what the work is doing, and then it says to accomplish this so great a work, Christ is always present in his church especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of his minister, the same now offering through the ministry of the priests, who formally offered himself on the cross, but especially 
in the Eucharistic species. So what it's saying there is, uh, and, and let me read on a little bit, actually. Uh, and then it says, you know, he's, he's present in his word, which is in the liturgy of the word, when we read that, since it is he himself who speaks in the Holy Scriptures. And he's present when the church prays and sings. So he's present in the people who are at Mass because he promised in Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. So there's different... And, and we don't want to set this up as a hierarchy of, of goods in the sense that one is lesser. But we have to set it up... We, we have to sort of see it uh, as a as a hierarchy of reverence, you could say. Do I genuflect to Sam every time he walks into the house? Because Christ is present in Sam. He is present in him, in a real way. Do I genuflect to the dynamic presence of Christ in Sam? Uh, no, I don't. Because Christ is present in Sam, but he's not present in Sam in the same way that he's present in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and that that is a good thing. So it's not like Sam is, you know, a lesser version of Christ. I mean, especially after he receives the Eucharist, like, really present, uh, fully in him. But we, when Christ made the, the promise of being present in the Mass, he guaranteed to us his full body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Holy Eucharist. And, and setting that apart from everything else, including us, uh, allows for us to see more concretely Christ in the world. Uh, is, is Christ more present when we're all gathered together for the Mass than he is in each of us out in the world? Yes, in a powerful and real way, and we know that. We see it. When we pray together, it's more powerful than when we pray alone. Um, and when we pray together in the Mass, it's more powerful still. Uh, and then, for me, is Christ more present in me when I'm celebrating Mass than elsewhere? Yes, because he gives the priest the grace of being of celebrating the Mass in persona Christi Capitis. So in the person of Christ, the head. So when the, when the priest says the words of consecration, it's not me who consecrates the Holy Eucharist. It's Jesus. That's why I can't just... That's why I can't just sort of like show up to a random mass dressed like this, stick my hand out during the holy during the consecration and expect to be sort of concelebrating that mass. That's not how it works. It's only when I enter into the person of Christ and by that like actually put on the vestment that is a sign of that authority. Uh, there's there's rules set up in order that we don't sort of become prideful and, and presumptive. You know I mean, so so it's not it's not me. I can't just like say this is the body of Christ, uh, and then it becomes the body of Christ. It's not magic. Uh, the Lord gives a gift, and and that that gift has to be cared for. So the presence of Christ in the world, there's a hierarchy that doesn't mean. Uh, in a mystical way, it's like when Christ is present, it's infinite. But for our human reality. We have to set up these different distinctions because otherwise we end up with this sort of 
bland, leveled out uh, sort of theology of Christ's presence. And what that leads to is not more reverence for each other. It only leads to less reverence for the Eucharist. When we have this sort of flattened out, Christ is present everywhere. It doesn't make our daily life more holy. It makes us care less about the Holy Eucharist. At least that's been the effect. Because in this, in this sort of like post-Vatican II experiment of like Christ is present everywhere equally, it hasn't, it hasn't sort of lent people to a greater idea of Christ in them. All it's done is, is make the Eucharist into a sort of secondary thing. Uh, now, do I think we can have both, like a, a deeper knowledge of Christ's presence in us and a great reverence for the Eucharist? Yes, absolutely. And I think the, fa- the best way to go at that is acknowledge the beauty and the gift that is the Eucharist that we get to receive, which divinizes us. Uh, and so that's, that's at least, uh, at least personally for me, that's been one of the sort of greatest gifts in acknowledging my dignity, because we're all sort of hard on ourselves in that. One of the greatest sort of gifts in that way has been that I get to receive the Lord. He doesn't become me when I receive him. I become him. And that's a beautiful and amazing mystery. Um, So that's, there is, Christ is present everywhere, but you could say in degrees, uh, in a sort of a degree of reverence and solemnity. So paragraph eight, keep moving here, got a lot to cover. So the other thing in paragraph eight, this is a, it's pointing to that whole, that whole paragraph is basically, it's pointing to the, that in the mass, the mass is a heavenly liturgy. So in that, uh, there's a lot going on in Mass, and it can actually be a sort of confusing tension. Um, let me... We'll, we'll just, like, combine this little section that I was going to talk about with paragraph 10 as well, uh, because paragraph 10 starts, starts to speak into what I'm going to talk about here. It says, nevertheless... Which is page 160. Nevertheless, the liturgy is the summit toward which the activity of the Church is directed... And at the same time, it is the font from which all her power flows. And then it goes on to say, at the end of the paragraph, uh, that we take part in the sacrifice and we eat of the Lord's Supper. So that's, it's a, that's a sort of, at least at first sight, confusing thing. In the Mass, we have a sacrifice and a feast. You don't really think of those two things together. Now, that is, unless you're, in many ways, an, an ancient person, because the, the greatest feasts always came immediately after the sacrifice. Because the, the sacrifice was almost, unless you were just filthy rich, the only time you were ever going to eat meat was when 
animals were sacrificed to, to God, or if you were a Roman, to the gods. The only, meat, the only restaurants in Rome that served meat were attached to the temples, because that was the only place where animals were being sacrificed. An animal was so extremely expensive to just kill. Animals were used for other things. You know, sheep were used for their wool. You weren't going to kill and eat your sheep. That's, that's, you know, 10 meals as opposed to 10 years of wool. You know, so, so you use the sheep for wool. You used your cows for milk. Uh, or you raised them up and sold them to someone who could afford it, and you ate veggies for three years. You know, so the, uh, the, the feast and the sacrifice did go together. We, we sort of think as we've built up this tension in our head of... And I think it's, it, it's an okay tension to have because we think of sacrifice, the only sacrifice we ever think of is Christ on the cross. And just imagining yourself at the foot of the cross eating a giant banquet meal is a tension in our mind that is so difficult to hold. Now, is that actually what's happening? Yes. And there is a tension there, and we have to hold it. Now, in, in the history of the church, we've, it's, we've swung the pendulum from one way to the other, and alienated each other by doing so. So say, before the council, I'd say in the, in the what we call the traditional Latin mass, the pendulum had indeed swung with the way the liturgy looked and the way it felt and the mood of it to the point where the sacrifice of the mass was emphasized in the way that it was celebrated to the detriment of the banquet meal, the feast, the heavenly banquet. And so the vibe you got from the Mass was that this is a sacrifice. You got that. That was loud and clear. But the idea that it was a banquet was not at all clear. There was not a lot of sort of joyful singing happening uh, or sort of like the mystical reality was brought forward and the sort of banquet reality was barely present. Um, even in the wording and in the prayers and all that. Then, after the council, we're like, let's rediscover the banquet meal theology, the Toda feast, you know, the Thanksgiving feast. And so the pendulum swung all the way to the other side, and we get this, uh, we get an almost sort of like, at a meal, we're not, you know, it's, it's a more casual thing. It's, it's a more sort of, you're more at home in the banquet meal. Uh, and so, it got to the point where the sacrifice didn't was no longer really present in in the celebration of the mass and it was all banquet meal so then anyone who's sort of like thinking about the reality of this thing like oh my gosh this is this is also Christ on the cross it's also the the sacrifice we can't why are we so stinking casual you know we can't we can't just like, like wander around as though this isn't a big deal. How, or how are we not giving, bringing about more reverence? And so anytime we don't hold the tension well, people with a disposition or a devotion to sort of one part of that or the other are going to be alienated. And so I know part of the restoring of certain elements of the Mass that speak to the sacrifice are seen as cold and distant and, and sort of, you know, they're going to make someone who's here to celebrate a banquet meal feel uncomfortable. But 
We need both those elements because both are crucial to what the Mass is doing, the sanctification. Uh, if we forget about the sacrifice, we forget about the thing that saved us from our sins. If we forget about the banquet, we forget about the joy of the heavenly feast that we're anticipating with the Mass. So, But holding that is difficult. I, under, I understand. We kind of have to like go back and forth throughout the, over the course of the celebration of the Mass, but both of them need to be present, uh, which is why there's certain ma- parts of Mass that are penitential, and there's certain parts that are sort of joyful, and, uh, and it almost seems it's pulling us in different directions, which is good. Uh, does that make sense? Does that sort of tension make sense? Because uh, it's, an, it's an important sort of uh, <coughs> thing that we have to hold together. Yeah. There's the sacrifice part, but then Easter. It's both. It's both the resurrection and the Last Supper. So the Last Supper, in which Jesus is, he's, he's speaking to something that's sort of already happened, but not yet. He knows the resurrection is coming, so he's already sort of anticipating it in the Last Supper, but also within the Last Supper. There's already within that feast the sort of sacrificial aspect. Um, but certainly, almost all the prayers in our Mass come from Revelation, which is one giant heavenly banquet. So, all like the Holy, 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 everything that we're singing is coming from a book of the scriptures that is a giant banquet in heaven. Uh, and so, it does speak, definitely speak to the resurrection because the heavenly banquet is a celebration of the resurrection. Um, so <clears throat> I don't know if we can really see, like the trajectory of the Mass isn't directly sort of like life, death, resurrection of Christ. There's sort of elements of all of it, of all the life, death, and resurrection throughout. So it, it's oversimplifying it just to say sort of we're, we're just going through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, though sometimes it does sort of work out beautifully like that. But the uh, there is sort of, the, the resurrection is certainly the celebratory aspect. Because the Last Supper wouldn't have been a, a feast unless Christ actually rose from the dead. It would just be a tragedy if he didn't. Yeah. Okay. So now we're to a, a phrase that I can confidently say is abused in the church. Um, only, only because it's uh, used by all sides to try and prove their point. So, paragraph 11. I promise we're not going to go this specifically through every paragraph of this whole document. Uh, that would obviously be impossible. But, I mean, we could do it if we wanted to do it for the next three times. Paragraph 11. So I'm going to start halfway through at Pastors of Souls. Pastors of Souls must therefore realize that when the liturgy is celebrated, something more is required than the mere observation of the laws governing valid and licit celebration. It is their duties to also to ensure that the faithful take part 
fully aware of what they are doing, actively engaged in the right, and enriched by its effects. Have you ever heard the phrase, we need full, active, con conscious participation in the liturgy? Full, active, conscious participation. That's, that's a phrase of Vatican II that has been probably published, I would say it's been published in at least 100,000 documents since Vatican II. Uh, whether that's books or, or uh, you know, articles or speeches or homilies or full, active, conscious participation. Rarely, though, we actually think about what full, active, conscious participation in the Mass means. What we, what we tend to mean by it is either, like, you have to do something. Like, you have to sort of, like, be moving physically and, like, fiddling with something, or you're not fully active consciously participating. Uh, like, but, but let's just acknowledge the reality that if we have 300 people coming to Mass on a weekend at Christ the King, not everyone can fiddle with something during Mass. I mean, everyone probably is at some point fiddling with something because they're, they're distracted. But, like, not everyone can... Uh, not everyone can be a lector. Not everyone can be an extraordinary minister of the Holy Communion. Not everyone can be... We, even if we keep adding roles, not everyone could be an usher or a greeter or a, or a AV person uh, or, a, or a musician. If everyone was doing something active, it would actually be chaotic. Uh, it, it, now, so obviously that's not a possibility. Do we want all those things? Yes. I want all those roles to be filled and filled to the brim. Uh, in as much as they're possible. That is, that is one way of fully, actively, and consciously participating in the Mass. Now, frankly, I would hate to do AV. I feel like that takes away full, active, conscious participation because uh, you're just sort of like semi-distracted the whole time. Um, so I, Sam makes a great sacrifice, so does Gavin, uh, <laughs> in doing that so often. Uh, so... Those roles, in some ways, are full active conscious participation. In others, they're a sort of sacrifice for the good of the community because they're, in part, taking you away. Uh, am I as prayerful as the priest at Mass as I was in the pews? No. When I start getting overly sort of mystical and prayerful, I mess up. So to a certain extent, I have to pull back from entering in in prayer in the way that I want to in order to competently, reverently, and uh, licitly and validly celebrate a Mass. The other day, I was getting all prayerful during daily Mass, and I accidentally said the consecration for the wine twice in a row for the, for the bread and the wine. And then I had to silently consecrate the bread uh, afterward because I realized what I had done. That's, that's, that's like an invalid level faux pas. Jesus is not showing up if I don't remember that and fix it. Uh, so, so that's a... So it can't just be that. So what is full, active, conscious participation then? What does it mean? Uh, so there's a couple different documents that, that speak to it. One would be... Uh, a commentary, I can't remember exactly what. There's one of Pope John Paul II's follow-up uh, follow 
documents on the liturgy in the, some, somewhere in the 80s. And he says, well, first, in order to participate in a thing, we have to know what the thing is. So what is the Mass? What are we doing? I said this in my homily this weekend. I said a lot, I guess. What's, what are, what's the primary thing that we're doing in Mass? Well, I would say the first thing is just showing up. Yeah, showing up. Uh, that's definitely the, the, a, mandatory, uh, a mandatory beginning. But what if you had to describe the Mass as a thing, so like what's the verb? Worship. Worship, yeah. We're worshiping God. Uh, is there a lot more to it than that? Yes, but the primary thing we're doing is worshiping. So then the primary, the primary way to fully participate is to worship with everyone else. Uh, so worship. What is worship? It's a form of prayer. The Mass is primarily a prayer, specifically a worship prayer. Now, when, so, so in, in terms of things that take, that are like actively participating in worship, he, he lists off a bunch. So we're gathering, that's the first thing. And then we're listening, and then we're responding, and then we have all the sort of physical sort of manifestations of that, which I think are so great about Mass. The sort of standing, sitting, kneeling, the silence. Actually, silence is, it, when a full room of people is silent, that is a novel thing. That's, not, that's a rare thing. Like, so for everyone to participate in silence, that's actually way harder than, uh, than many of the other parts of Mass. Then processing, receiving, giving peace to one another. So there's, there's a lot of different physical manifestations that everyone in the, in the Mass takes part in for, for, the, uh, for the sort of active worship that's taking place. There's a lot of different elements. Uh, but in general, the primary role of all of us who are coming, the priest, the musicians, the laity at large, the, the anyone who's doing any sort of active role is prayer. Uh, so this is what Benedict XVI says in Sacra, Sacramentum Caritatis, which is one of his uh, encyclical letters. He says, participation does not refer to merely external activity during the celebration. It is a greater awareness of the mystery being celebrated and its relationship to daily life. So that is one of the great goals of Vatican II, that we figure out what's happening at Mass. Not entirely, it's a mystery, but that we, that we seek, that we dig into that mystery. The, one of the phrases, I think, that was, in, that was an inspiration for the Council was the phrase, I'm going to go watch Mass. So that it, was a, it was a common way to refer to going to Mass. That you're going to just go, I'm going to go watch Mass. I'm going to go view the Mass. Uh, and that idea was that, like, I'm going to go watch the priest do something. Uh, like, I'm just going to sit out here and watch the priest do something. 
we have come to a deeper reality of what everyone is sort of present for, that there is a real participation happening on the level of prayer and then sort of manifesting in different ways physically. But I think, I think as a sort of just practical reality, we have to uh, get away from the... I guess there's, you could say, spiritually, there's like a Martha and Mary element to Mass. Not everyone can be Martha. But not everyone can be Mary either, because otherwise, you know, uh, yeah, nothing gets done. But, the, but there's the Mary part is the greater part, as Jesus says. The spirituality of Mary is the, the more fundamental uh, of the spiritualities. And then the Martha is, is a sort of beautiful manifestation of what's going on interiorly. Um, but if we only have that one, we're not going to get anywhere. If it's if only a bunch of Martha busybodies running around, uh, it's just we're not going to be able to do what we need to do at Mass. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of generally that. And then how it affects daily life. What do we bring with us? What do we offer in the sacrifice? Because we're all offering something. Nice. So now we're going to just pump through some general norms. That So that was sort of the theological part. And then we're going to push through some general norms in hopefully 15 minutes. Okay. Paragraph 22. So... Paragraph 22 speaks to, um, I guess, what we called, in many ways, the, uh, I guess, when it comes down to it, it's the, it speaks to what can be experimented with and what cannot. So paragraph three in there says, no one, oh, well, paragraph one says, regulation of the sacred liturgy depends solely on the authority of the church, that is, the apostolic see, and as some laws may determine on the bishop. So almost everything in the liturgy is the, is the sole, is under the sole jurisdiction of the apostolic see. Certain laws can be determined on the level of the bishop. And then paragraph 3 says, Therefore no other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy by his own authority. And as a follow-up on that, Pope John Paul II, in our in the little uh, commentary section below, on page 165, he's in Ecclesia de Eucharistia, which is one of the documents he released, released as a sort of follow-up to Vatican II. A little bit down, he says, the liturgy is never anyone's private property, be it the celebrant or the community in which the mysteries are celebrated. So in that sense, the Mass doesn't, doesn't belong to us. Uh, it does in the, in, as the whole, as the body of Christ. At, in the, so far as we're a part of the body of Christ, the liturgy is ours. But it's not ours on... It's not ours to do with as we wish, in that sense. We're stewards. We don't own it. Um, and so when we think of the sort of the steward of the vineyard, uh, 
The steward of the vineyard just bears the fruit according to how the owner of the vineyard set the vineyard up. Um, because the owner owns it, and he knows what he's doing. Um, and so we just celebrate it and and can just sort of trust that there's going to be fruit in it. So that's why I am loath to ever experiment with the liturgy in in terms of the rubrics of the liturgy. I, am, I do not have the authority, nor will I ever have the authority to change parts of the Mass uh, or, or even any of the, even the most minute prayers. Not my authority. Um, nor is it our authority at Christ the King. Uh, now, with certain rubrics, when say we were talking about like kneeling or standing, there, the germ asks us to do a particular thing. It doesn't that's not on the level of, say, like, if I just rephrase the Eucharistic prayer, which was commonly done for a long period of time after the council. Uh, I had a buddy who actually, he was celebrating a mass with a group of priests. I don't remember when this was or where it was, and I wouldn't probably say it out loud if I did. But he, he celebrated mass, and he just used Eucharistic prayer three, which is one of the common ones that I'll use on Sunday. And and at the end of Mass, they said, well, that was, a, the, the other priests that were there said, that was a beautiful Eucharistic prayer. Uh, when, when, you know, where did you get that? Where did, how, when did you come up with that? Did you just do that on the spot? He's like, no, that was Eucharistic prayer three. Uh, it, so what basically what had been happening there is they just made it up as they went. And so that that's sort of taking upon ourselves an authority that is not ours uh, and just sort of, and mainly it's because the faithful, you, have a right to the Eucharist. And when I start making things up, mass, the Mass ceases to become the Mass. So uh, you have rights. And if I ever start changing the Mass, feel free to kick me out. Uh, great. I think there's one more thing that I want to hopefully get to. Oh, there, uh, there was a couple of the questions. I was going to uh, read a particular thing from Vicenimus Quintus Anus, but actually I want to get to some of the practicals of the questions that we asked. Uh, so, In paragraph 34, we're just pumped through rubrics here. Part, part of the reason for the reforms was that the old mass was very repetitive, and it had a lot of um, it had a lot of repetition and redundancy that had built up over ages. So if you ever go and watch, you'll see a million sort of signs of the cross and genuflections and very specific strategic movement from one place to another. Repetitive prayers. Uh, how many times do we say the Lamb of the God, Lamb of God, in the New, in the Novus Ordo, at the beginning? Or Lord have mercy. Sorry. How many times do we say? It? Say Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. In the Old Mass, you say Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Nine times. Uh, nine times you say that thing at the very beginning of Mass, and it's actually it's kind of like a different. 
It's a, it's a server trick to know when the fourth one comes because you initiate the Christ have mercy. Um, so anyways, there, that you could say, expand that over the whole mass. So many private prayers, so many repetitions, two gospels at every mass, uh, an epistle and three psalms before mass even starts. So you've got a lot going on. Uh, and so noble simplicity, paragraph 34, is the Roman way. So that's why we brought it down to the essentials. Uh, it says, short, clear, unencumbered by useless repetitions. And in many ways, this was the beauty of the new rite. Because it's dang near impossible. Not dang near impossible. It takes a long time for a priest to even be able to celebrate the extraordinary form. It is so complicated. Now, if you're doing it every day, your whole life, it, it can, to a certain extent, become second nature. Uh, but the complication makes it so difficult to enter in. So then, the readings, uh, paragraph 35. The new lectionary is incredible. I just say it's objectively better than the old lectionary. Uh, so much more of the scriptures are read, and and there's so many beautiful things, beautiful readings and gospel readings that were left out of the old uh, of the old lectionary that are now in the new lectionary. As a Methodist growing up, I used the Catholic lectionary. That's how beautiful it was. We, for most Protestant churches, have just acknowledged that it's amazing and they just adopted it. So it's actually been a great ecumenical uh, movement as well. So, chap, paragraph 36. This is the big question for a lot of people. Latin versus the versus the uh, mother tongue or vernacular. So paragraph 2 says, well, paragraph 1 says, Latin is still to be preserved in the Latin rites. So we're supposed to preserve Latin. What does that mean? versus what a vernacular. So paragraph 2 says, since the mother tongue uh, is something that people understand, basically, we ought to expand where that's possible. Readings, directives, so like telling people what to do, prayers, and chants. Uh, So those, so you could say music, readings, and specific prayers. So that's, that is prayers that aren't repeated every week, which is the collect, the preface, the uh, offertory prayer, and the closing prayer, the prayer after communion. Those four prayers change every week. Uh, and therefore, we should say them in the vernacular because otherwise, no one's going to know what's going on. <clears throat> there are certain prayers that we say every single week over and over and over again, and it, uh, what Benedict XVI says in Sacrosanctum Caritatis is, better known prayers of the church's tradition should be recited in Latin, and if possible, Gregorian chant is to be employed. So what it's saying here is not necessarily that that should happen all the time. Now, Benedict might actually be saying that. The USCCB does not say that insofar as they say that, but they do. What they do say, and what every church document has said, is we should be capable of saying our common prayers, the ones we say every week, in Latin. Um, in the same way that, like, you know, should we be able to say a rosary in Spanish? Yes, we should. Everybody should be able to say a rosary in Spanish uh, and in Latin. But like, 
you know, when we go to World Youth Day, or when you go to the World Meeting of Families, or when you go to Rome in general, you've got 1.2 billion people who could potentially be there all saying the same prayers in the same language. I've been to, I haven't been to World Youth Day yet, I'm going to go to Portugal, but I have been to World Youth Meeting of Families, and there were a million people at Mass saying the prayers of the Mass in Latin. That was beautiful. How much effort does it take? Like a month's worth of effort. And the other thing is that praying the common prayers in Latin gives us access to 1,600 years of beautiful chant that has been written specifically for those prayers in that language. Whereas our, our sort of breadth of sort of chant options or singing options for English are a total of 60 years. And then we could maybe go way back to the English, the old English rite, which I forgot the name of, that, that said the Roman rite in, or that had its own rite and said it in English for a while until England became Protestant. But the, uh, most of our songs that we sing and hymns that we sing are Methodist or, or Anglican, uh, which is fine. Growing up Methodist, we wrote good music. It's amazing. Uh, but the, but we, we've only been writing in English for 60 years, so learning the Latin gives us a huge store uh, of things to sing. And it's a beautiful language. Uh, so that's kind of the, the general thing with Latin. Things that are unique, say them in the mother tongue. Things that are common, we should be capable of doing them in Latin um, in order that we can pray together with the whole church in a very concrete way. Then the final, the final thing is that what's the cathedral doing? That's a, that's a big question. Um, that's sort of the, the, uh, the norm for us. How does our cathedral celebrate the liturgy? That should be the standard that we strive for. Now, obviously, uh, we shouldn't just replicate it in a sort of robotic way, but um, take their lead. I actually asked John Emery, our new organist at the cathedral, to come in and play music for us and then, ex and then explain the relationship between sacred music and the liturgy and sort of talk to us about sacred liturgy. He just got his PhD uh, from McGill University. Brilliant, brilliant guy. So I'm going to bring him in one of these days. Uh, finally, I guess I'll just finish with this. Eucharist under both species. That's been a, uh, a common discussion. Uh, the chalice and the host. So it says, Eucharist first should be from that Mass whenever possible. So we celebrate Eucharist from that Mass. And then second, um, under both species, if the bishop permits it, which, which Bishop Vetter is currently not permitting it because of the vid, but hopefully soon enough will permit it uh, and then we'll address it at that point. So it's the fullness of the symbol to receive it under both species, uh, to receive both the, the body and blood. But theologically, the full body, blood, soul, and divinity is present in both. So if you receive one or the other, that is the fullness of the Eucharist. So we don't have to receive under both to receive the fullness of Christ, but, the, but as in all the other things we've just been talking about, the physicality of the thing matters because we're bodies and spirits. 
Um, so we want to we want the fullness of the symbol if it's possible. That's all I've got, and we kind of we're out of time. But we we asked a bunch of questions at the beginning. We kind of had our discussion part at the beginning this time, uh, so I feel like we made some good headway. If you if any of this brought, brings up more questions, or you talk to people outside of here, and, you're, and they're, they're like, hey, what about this and this? Uh, we can kind of follow up on this document next week uh, before going into Gaudium at Spes.